You're listening to Independence, the FIC podcast. In this episode, you'll hear from Paul Mallard, the former pastor of Whitcomb Baptist Church in Bath, speaking at the 2022 FIC Leaders Conference. The title of his talk was The Most Holy Faith, taken from Jude. I, I grew up in Birmingham and uh, my dad worked in a factory and he had one week's holiday a year and we always came to Blackpool. So uh, it used to be called Birmingham by the Sea in those days. It's great to be back. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Jude. And we're not going to actually work through this passage, but we're going to use it as a a launch pad to think about why theology is important and and the kind of theology that we need in order to contend for the faith. Back in 1962, a little FIC church in Kings Heath in Birmingham decided that they would have a holiday club. So in the summer holidays, they, they got together, they, they put up a, a banner which had the letters Kadju on, come and join us. And with a couple of guitars, they walked around the streets of King's Heath, getting the children to follow them, like the Pipe Piper at Hamlin. No, no, no child protection in those days. He just took the children off, ran the park and back again, and uh, told them the gospel. I was six years old. And because that church, small as it was, contended for the faith, I heard the gospel for the first time. And I was saved at the age of 11 and had the amazing privilege of being discipled in a church with a pastor who was an FIC man who contended for the faith. He wasn't what you describe as a great theologian, but he loved the Lord and he loved the word and he gave me a, a absolute confidence in scripture. I knew that the the Bible had absolute authority because what the Bible says, God says. And I knew that the Bible was inerrant because God can't tell lies. And I knew it was sufficient. I didn't need anything else other than God's word to please him and to live for his glory. I knew it had clarity and simplicity. And I knew that it was necessary. Men and women needed to hear the gospel to be saved. And that was great, and that was the foundation that a church that believed in the scripture gave to me. And then at the age of 18, I went to study theology at Cambridge. Uh, I I was a a very naive, working-class, brummy lad, and the first night they said to me, there's going to be a garden party for all the new theologians, to which my response was, what's a garden party? It's a party in a garden. Okay, so so I'm stood there drinking a drink, and this guy comes across. He says, you're you're, you're new. Yes, yeah, yeah. Have you decided where you're going to worship yet? And I say, I'm going to go to Eden Baptist Church. I remember so clearly, he kind of took a step back, and he said, you're not an evangelical, are you? I said, yeah. He said, you people, you're, you're nice, but you've got this strange idea. You actually believe the Bible, don't you? You're going to find it really rough. (laughs) And I did. My Old Testament lecturer didn't believe in Abraham. My New Testament lecturer didn't believe in the resurrection. And my philosophy teacher didn't believe in God. (laughs) One of my teachers was Don Cupid, who described himself as an existentialist Buddhist agnostic Christian. And and part of his job was training men for the ministry. So come, come on, you know. And, and it was a real struggle. I went back to my church, and, and there's this pastor who, who, who felt a little bit out of his depth, I think, but he just said, look, look at the word of God and love Jesus and just ask this question, what's the fruit? Where does it go? 
And after about two years, I looked at the fruit that liberal theology, you can call it whatever you like, but we'll call it liberal theology. You look at what it produced, and it produced nothing. In the letter that we read earlier, uh, Jude talks about these clouds, and they look as if they're full of rain, and they come across, and there's the land, and it's parched, and it's thirsty. And the clouds are just blown away by the wind. And, and liberal theology is like that. It sounds beautiful, but it's a mirage. It offers nothing. Somebody said, liberal theology, it's like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. Because you see, if you start with man, that's how you get there. And I persisted and I continued in the faith because there was a little church with a pastor who wasn't a great theologian, but knew enough to tell me that we contend for the faith. I'm so grateful to FIC. I was grateful for my conversion, grateful for that discipleship, grateful that for 40 years now I've been able to serve FIC churches preaching that same gospel. Grateful the men who passed it on from one generation to the next. Because that's what our job is to do. It's not to be smart and, and savvy and all the rest. It's simply to take the baton and pass it on. I don't know if you remember the, the, the 2004 Olympics in Athens. The four by 100 metres was won by the British team. Now, it should have been the Americans. It should have been a a breeze for the Yanks because they got the four fastest men on planet Earth. And yet the British team got the gold. Why? Because they practised again and again and again at passing on the baton. They weren't the fastest on Earth, but they were brilliant at passing on the baton. We may not be the cleverest, the wisest, the the, the best qualified people on Earth, but we know the gospel, and we've got the baton, and our job, as John reminded us this afternoon, is to fight for it, to get down into the trenches, uh, to, to live for it, to die for it if necessary, and to take that baton and to pass it on to the next generation. So in the light of that, what kind of... What kind of theology do we need to to meet the challenge? I've asked Dan Strange to come and and help us think about that for for a few minutes. Uh, Dan will explain who he is, and uh, he'll help us to think about that. Hi, Paul. Hi, everyone. Hi, Paul. Hi, everyone. Uh, Yeah, my name's Dan Strange. I'm the director of Crossland's Forum, a centre for uh, culture, engagement and mission, part of Crossland's training which is providing in-context theological resources uh, to support churches from first steps in the faith through to uh, a high-level theological study. It's great to be with you. Uh, I've been asked, just in a few minutes, this question. uh, What will be the main theological issues facing us in the next few years? Uh, It's been said that the main issue in the first millennium was, who is Jesus Christ? In the second millennium, the question was, how are we saved? And now, as we are into the third millennium, the question is, and will continue to be, what is a human being? The seismic implications of this, individually, culturally, politically, and while I think we still recognise what could be called a Christian afterglow, can't be underestimated, and we are all feeling those impacts at the moment. Whether it's the presenting issues of sexuality, gender, transhumanism, embodiment, or even the the, the worldviews that underlie those presenting issues, 
the focus on the self, expressive individualism or social constructivism, or all of these things, just what does it mean to be human? And I think the main theological issue that we'll be facing and are facing is that our responses will be superficial and we will be like Red Leader in Star Wars who try and hits the Death Star and just says negative, negative, it's just impacted on the surface. And so we need to go deep. Four things. First, first, our challenge will be to go deep theologically. As we dig down into the presenting issues, what we are up against are competing interpretations of the fabric of reality. What we're calling theories. The lenses through which we view the world and which highlight certain things as viable, visible and valuable. And our challenge in our preaching and our praying and our discipling and our evangelizing will be to analyze and critique and construct, looking through the Bible to demonstrate how the biblical story and Christ crucified is the true interpretation of reality. If I might say, the subversive fulfillment of all idolatrous interpretations. And this will include, and I think COVID did highlight this for us, how thin our political and public theology has been. So simply prioritizing time and resources for theological in the broadest sense, thinking and teaching at every level from basic catechesis through to supporting busy ministers through to, uh, uh, to, to advanced research is going to be vital. In that sense, the biggest theological challenge is ignorance and lack of concern. So we're going to have to go deep theologically. Second, we're going to have to go deep effectively. The increasing grip of secularism is going to make the social cost of Christianity higher and higher. We will not pay that cost unless we perceive the incomparable nature of God, not just quantitatively, but qualitatively. Our challenge will be to live in reverent fear, not fearing what other people fear, increasingly apocalyptically. This is a theological issue. How are we going to engender this affection and its fruit, which should lead to our own solid and stable sense of identity in Christ and love for him, in which there's a boldness and a freedom and a joy, which is liberating. So deep theologically, deep affectively. Third, we need to go deep historically. Now, by that, I don't mean a sentimentalized romanticism or retreat. We are going to have to come to terms with being a minority, often a despised minority in our churches, with certain professions closed to Christians. Professions like teaching and medicine, for which we have been disproportionately drawn from. Free churches have a particular contribution to make here. If we can remember our history, it was only 200 years ago that we couldn't stand for Parliament and 150 years ago that we couldn't go to university and therefore into the professions. Let's draw on that heritage and remember what we did. 
Fourthly and finally, our challenge will be to go deep fellowshiply. We need each other, not simply the challenge of making time for relationships between us at FIC, which is crucial, but the challenge of maintaining firm theological convictions whilst recognising that we need to show solidarity and to collaborate with other gospel-centred Christians in the UK and around the world. However much this puts us out of our cultural comfort zone, we will have to be working on what could be called a theology of collaboration. So deep theologically, deep affectively, deep historically, deep fellowshiply, all these are great challenges, but we have a God who is with us in all those challenges and is Lord over them. Thanks. Thank you, Dan. That, that, that was uh, breathtaking, wasn't it? That is a huge challenge. If you've got Jude there, let me just read one verse, verse 20. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. For 30 years, I was a pastor, uh, for 15 years, I was a pastor in, in Worcester. And while I was there, I set up a, a foundation course. It was a kind of a basic doctrine course. We ran it two or three times a year. It was evangelistic. It was also for young Christians to be discipled, getting the foundations of their lives right. We did all the basics from the doctrine of scripture through to eschatology. One of the ladies who came on the course was a, a, a married lady called Danielle. She had four kids. She came along as a non-Christian, a friend brought her, and as she listened to the great doctrines of the faith that, that are taught, that are, are, are part of that apostolic foundation that is to be passed on, she came to know the Lord. And so she came on the foundation a second time and a third time. In her mid-40s, Danielle was diagnosed with terminal cancer. About a month, I guess it was, before she died, Edrie and I went to see her. And we shared the scriptures and we prayed together. And then we, we, we got ready to go. And her husband had keeping the four kids next door. And the kids came in and, uh, and they kind of surrounded her. And a little two, three-year-old just climbed into Danielle's lap. And, and she must have seen the look on my face. <laughs> I was kind of blown away by this. And she called me back and she said, Pastor, don't be afraid. Remember what you taught us. Remember you taught us about God, that the Lord is good and his mercy continues forever. And, and, and his goodness, his faithfulness is to all generations. And she pointed to her kids. She said, I, I believe that. Don't you believe it anymore? <laughs> it's great to be rebuked, isn't it? Why do I love orthodoxy? Why do we contend for the faith? Why do we need to, to stretch our minds? Why do we need to get into the trenches? Why? Well, because the truth is the truth. But also for people like Danielle. What would liberalism do? Well, it would rob her of a Bible she could trust. It would rob her of the word of God with all its promises, with all its... It would rob her of a God who is sovereign, 
who's in control, who's Lord of all. He would rob her of a saviour who had died to forgive her sins and had conquered the grave. It would rob her of eternal life. For all those reasons, we contend for the faith. We pass it on, verse 3, like that baton from one generation to the next. I thank God personally that for 100 years, and for 60 of my years, the FIC has been doing that without flinching. It's declared and delighted in and defended the gospel. I'm grateful to God, particularly in these last decade or more, that the Lord has brought John into our midst as, a, as our, our director. I, John is, 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 just as you listened to him this afternoon, I, I knew what I was speaking about tonight, and I thought, well, he said everything I wanted to say, actually. <laughs> so, so I had to go home and rewrite it. But, but, but be that as it may, what, what a magnificent gift the Lord has given us in John. And we remind ourselves that, 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 that we're not the, just the new kids on the block inventing things that have never been there before. We're in line with the great men like Athanasius and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones. And we have brothers and sisters throughout the world. Within the United Kingdom, our gospel partners, our friends in Affinity and NIA and Keswick Convention and NFI, a band of brothers and sisters, we might belong to different regiments, but we're all in the same army. So what kind of theology do we need? Stepping back from Jude for a moment and just looking at the book as a whole, I, I, I want to suggest two things this evening. We need a theology that is strong pastorally. We need a pastoral theology for people like Danielle. And for all God's people. Notice how he begins his letter in verse 3. Dear friends. He's writing this letter as a pastor. As all the New Testament letters are written as as pastors. We don't divide the truth and life. And then look at verse 20. Build yourselves up in your faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Verse 21. Uh, And then, as John reminded us, those wonderfully compassionate, tender words in verse 22 to 23. Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Tell them of Jesus, who's mighty to save. All of the New Testament letters, all of them without exception, as they explain and express and help us to grasp these great doctrines, this this apostolic foundation, engage not just the head, but the heart and the hands as well. Why do we need to defend the gospel and pass it on? What kind of theology will we need? Well, we need this theology because we love people. We love lost people. Just think about this for a moment. Every single person that you meet every day of your life, you look them in the eye, that's a man or a woman who is going to live forever. They're an eternal soul. They will live forever in the bliss of heaven or in the lostness of eternal conscious punishment. Now, we live in a culture and we live in an atmosphere around us that wants to water that down. We want to sentimentalize the gospel. Maybe in the end, you don't really need to hear about Jesus to be saved. Maybe in the end, there's salvation wider than that. Maybe in the end, God has another plan and and, and so on. Can Can you see that is the cruelest possible thing that you can ever do? There's nothing crueler to tell people who are going to hell that they're going to be okay. Remember an FIC assembly, it must have been 20 odd years ago, when John Blanchard was speaking. And and he he gave a paper uh, at one of the seminars. He'd just written a book, Whatever Happened to Hell? Some of you remember that book? And he gave a paper arguing for the importance of of the doctrine of hell. And in the end, one one quotation I wrote down in, in my little book, and it said this, 
why is the doctrine of hell important? Because mission is important. You look at the great missionaries of the past, you look at the Hudson Taylors and so on, they were passionate conviction, had passionate conviction about the doctrine of hell. That's what drove them. There's no room for losing that gospel doctrine. But, but we also need pastoral theology because we love the Lord's people. If you're a pastor tonight or an elder, your call is to shepherd the flock, to defend them and to feed them. That's not an academic exercise. The, the, the great doctrines of the faith are the medicine for souls. It's what they need. They, they, they come to church on a Sunday and so many are struggling. When I started in ministry, I was mentored by an old strict Baptist guy called, uh, he'd been a strict Baptist minister in a particular church, I think it was about 200 years, uh, and his name was Mr. Ebenezer Knight. His wife was, was Florence Knight, together they were known as Eben Flo. And uh, I, I once asked him, what, what is it that I, I really need to know about the Lord's people? What, what do I need to know most of all to prepare me for ministry? And he said, what you need to understand is that the Lord's people tell lies. And I thought, okay, that's, that's a good, not what I was expecting. He said, it happens about 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning or 12 o'clock on a Sunday morning when you're standing at the door and you're shaking hands and they're coming out and you say to them, how are you doing? And they say, I'm doing fine. And you know that their lives are falling apart. They come in and they're struggling. They go out and they're, they're going into difficult marriages, difficult home situations, a constant battle with sin. And that week they failed in that battle. What do they need? Well, they need truth which is powerful enough to strengthen them and keep them going. That's why theology is important. That's the kind of theology we need. We sang it earlier, didn't we? Those, those great words based on the Heidelberg Catechism. What is my only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own. I belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins. And with his precious blood, he set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready for now to live for him forever. What kind of theology do we need? We need a theology that, that, that brings truth into the lives of God's people. We need a theology that quickens the conscience and softens the heart and transforms the life. And pastor teachers here tonight, your job is to be the best theologian you could be. The best theologian you could be and to take the truth and to communicate it in the way, the best way you can, so that, so that it kind of filters down. Sometimes the Lord's people say t t things to me like, like, you know, I'm not a theologian. And my response to that, well, yes, you are. You're either a good one or a bad one. All of us, if we ask anything about God, are theologians. We want everyone in our church to grasp these truths. I was incredibly excited a few, uh, few years ago when the Sunday school teacher in, in, or Sunday school superintendent in Bath said to me, look, Pastor, we're doing, we're doing the doctrine of God this, this, this term with the seven and eight-year-olds. Will you come and explain the Trinity to them? And I said, okay. <laughs> it was wonderful. Can I tell you something? Seven and eight-year-olds absolutely love Athanasius. They think he's brilliant, you know, and, and, you, and, and they can grasp it. That, that, that it's profound and it's mysterious and it's glorious, but they can grasp it. We need to 
make sure that the whole of the Lord's people come to know the truth as it is in Christ. So the first thing that we need to understand is that our theology needs to be pastoral. Number two, it needs to be doxological. It needs to be doxological. See the way in which Jude finishes letter. It's a difficult letter to write. It's a difficult letter to read. As he writes, it's a combative letter. There are parts of it that we struggle with, and we're conscious that there's a war on. But he ends with this wonderful doxology. The battle is over, and he rejoices in the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Shall I tell you a test of good theology? Test of good theology is, does it make you want to sing? If you don't want to sing, it's not very good theology. Last year, I was speaking at the Keswick Convention, and it was the Monday morning, and Colin and Phil were the band, and they were there, and it was the first day that we had permission to sing together. And I was on the platform, and, and, and we sang Great is thy faithfulness. And I looked out on the, on the, on the crowd, about 2,000 people, and you could see the tears rolling down their cheeks. It's wonderful to sing God's praises, isn't it? Say yes. <laughs> isn't it great? Didn't you miss that? Isn't it a fantastic thing to be able to sing the praises of God? Think, think of Psalm 66, for example. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Declare the awesomeness of our God. That's what we do when we sing. I mean, that word awesome is one of the most misused words in the vocabulary, isn't it? I had an awesome holiday. No, you didn't. Even if you went to Blackpool, it wasn't awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the other day, someone said to me, and, and I almost strangled them. I, 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 we went to the, I had an awesome pizza. Well, come on. You know, I don't like pizzas anyway. You might as well put cheese on cardboard as far as I'm concerned. But, but you've never had an awesome pizza. Of course, yeah. Shall I tell you what is awesome? Our God, the mystery of the Trinity, that one God exists eternally in three persons so that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Spirit is God and yet the Father is not the Son and the Spirit is not the Son and so on, uh, that this God exists in eternal loving relationship before ever a, a star was, was created or an angel flashed its wings, God was there in wonderful loving communion and then at the fullness of time, the second person of the Trinity, without ceasing to be God, laid aside the majesty of his glory and became flesh. That's awesome. Smaller than a full stop in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That's awesome. And he became a man just like us, one person with two natures, without division or separation or confusion or change, and, and without ceasing to be God. He experienced our humanity. He knew what it was to be hungry and thirsty and sad and, and to hit his thumb with a, with a hammer and feel pain. And he knew what it was, ultimately, to go into the darkness so that the one who for eternal ages had known the love of his father, this eternal, glorious, amazing love, went into the darkness. And out of the darkness he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the sins of all his people are laid upon the, the darling of heaven. And the angels can't understand it. 
But there in the mystery of the Trinity, the atonement for all God's people is accomplished. And when he's done, he cries, it's finished. That's awesome. And three days later, he rises from the dead and he conquers death. And brothers and sisters, he's coming back again. And all the blessings that flow from that, so that now God the Father is my Father, eternally my Father. I can call him Abba Father. He delights in me. He'll never let me go. And Christ is my Savior and my Master and my King and the Captain of my salvation. And the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the Giver of life, dwells within me. And he assures me and he brings God's promises to me. And he helps me to grasp the glory of my salvation. And I belong to the Church of Christ. And I'm part of the body and all the promises of God are mine. And I'm saved and I'm sealed and I'm satisfied and I'm justified and I can never be unjustified. And I'm being sanctified and one day I will be glorified and this old body will be transformed. That's the glory. That's awesome. And sing the awesomeness of this God and the glory of that salvation. That's why. That's why we need to defend the faith. That's why we stand for these things. That's why we contend every day. The Bible speaks of a God of agonizing beauty, of utter perfection, whose character is flawless, whose beauty is untarnished, whose wisdom is unsearchable, whose purity is unblemished, whose power is unlimited. A God of goodness and truth and kindness and holiness and justice all the way through. He has no dark side. He is utterly good. He is holy. He's set apart. He's unique. He's without equal. And we are stunned to silence and moved to worship and driven to our knees as we tremble before this God. Where's the best place to do theology? On your knees, trembling before this God. And this God comes to us in the person of Christ. All our theology is to to be done in earshot of the manger and the cross and the empty tomb. We prize him. We cherish him. We treasure him. That gospel's worth defending, do you not think? It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. Forgive, if you will, a a personal note at the end. Um, My wife and I, this year, 30 years, uh, has been significant for us. Our daughter... Uh, celebrated her 30th birthday. It was actually 30 years ago at a CASTA conference, FIC conference, that my wife first showed signs of being unwell. And, uh, and then soon after that, she was admitted to hospital and uh, a great nightmare enveloped us. Never forget the day when the doctor said to us, well, I'm not sure your wife's going to make this. We, we, we'll try and save her, we'll try and save the baby, but who knows? And I remember going home that day and, and my little daughter said, Daddy, will you, will you comb my hair? Now, for various reasons, I'm not a great aficionado at, at combing hair. So, so we sat on the stairs and I've got the comb and I'm kind of macheting her hair like this. And she bursts into tears and so do I. And she'd never seen me cry. She said, what are you, I just want mummy back. I just want my girl back. I went to bed that night, dog tired and fell asleep and woke up at about two o'clock in the morning and I thought... I'm not going to sleep again. You know what it's like when you're tossing and turning and, and you have absolute fear, totally overwhelmed with fear. How on earth am I going to get through this? And then I can't remember the time, but suddenly into my mind, the Holy Spirit brought just a fraction of a verse from Psalm 30, verse 18. As for God, his way is perfect. As for God, 
his ways. Can I, can I tell you my heart was filled with peace? The doctrine of the truth of the character of God, this awesome God, this God who loves sinners, just filled me with, with absolute peace. And then I did something quite amazing, actually. I went to sleep. <laughs> and I couldn't wait the next day to say to Edry, look, can I just tell you, this is what the Lord has taught us. As for God, his way is perfect. And we made it our prayer, Lord, help us whatever comes, however this happens, help this to be the, the, the thing that we hold on to, the truth of your word. We know it's true, Lord. Nothing's going to budge us from that. Martin Luther once said, when you sleep at night, you, you put your head on three pillows. Number one, the sovereignty of God. The Lord reigns. Some of you tonight are going through really tough times, and it's tempting to say, well, maybe God isn't really in control. Maybe this came under the radar. No, no, the Lord reigns. The sovereignty of God and the goodness of God. He's too good to hurt you unnecessarily. And the wisdom of God. And can I say 30 years later, those great truths continue to be the, the foundation of our lives. I'm so grateful to God that he's given me a wife who is full of courage and also is full of doctrine. When I doubt, she tells me. Boy, does she tell me. So, so there's the truth. That's why doctrine is important. That's why we defend it. That's why we stand for it. That's why we should be willing to die for it. Let me pray. Father, we want to thank you tonight for the truth that has been revealed to us. We thank you that it is the foundation of our lives, that it is our hope. Oh, Lord, help us to love the truth. Help us to defend it. Help us to fight for it. Help us, Lord, to, to, to pay whatever cost there is to stand for this gospel. Lord, help us to contend for the faith, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to The Independence Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do follow and subscribe to hear more episodes on your podcast app. Or you can subscribe on YouTube as well. Just search for FIEC. And if you could leave a rating or review too, that'd be really great to get the podcast out to more church leaders. Thanks.